0: Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Calvary Chapel, we go verse by verse through the Bible. We are in John chapter 6, verse 50. The Bible says, This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Father, just like that song, that's what we want to do. We want to lay ourselves at your feet this morning. You are all that we need in this life, no matter what we are facing. I pray you would take your word today. Lord. Let it find fertile ground in the hearts that are here and do a work in us, O Lord. We ask in your name. Amen. Thank you, You may be seated. In the story of civilization, Will Durant notices succinctly the clear result in the grand showdown between the might of Rome, which was perhaps the greatest power of all time, and Jesus. He writes By rejecting Jesus, Julian the Apostate made a wreck of his life, but thankfully, His reign was short-lived. It is said that he was wounded in battle, and as he lay dying, he picked up a handful of sand filled with his own blood and threw it into the sky and said, Thou hast conquered, O thou Galilean. But he hasn't been the only leader to recognize the supremacy of Christ. Even Napoleon acknowledged the superiority and absolute difference in Jesus. He said... Everything in Christ astonishes me. His spirit overaws me, and his will confounds me. Between him and whoever else there is in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. He is truly a being by himself. I search in vain in history to find the similar to Jesus Christ, or anything which can approach the gospel. And so I begin this morning with a question. What is it that brings these two seemingly irreconcilable pictures of Jesus together, that of being both powerless and yet at the same time all-powerful? In reality, who was he? Was he just a great moral teacher and the ultimate example? Or as some think him, a nationalistic agitator and a failed Jewish revolutionary? Or was he a wild-eyed prophet with the gleam of an apocalyptic end in the world of the world in his eye, or a wandering cynical preacher, a shrewd Galilean holy man, or, as he claimed, something more, something much, much more? One commentator says such questions go far beyond the questions surrounding any other great figure in history. For in the case of Jesus, one possible answer to his identity is so explosive and life-changing or so preposterous and offensive that no entirely cool appraisal will ever be possible. In the next two or three weeks, that's what we're going to be digging into. Look at verse 50 and 51 with me. We will spend all of our time on these two verses. The Bible says, This is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. Before I begin sharing what this text means, I first want to look at what it does not mean. It should be noted that the Roman Catholic Church appeals to this passage as a proof of the doctrine of transubstantiation. That might be a new word to you, transubstantiation. It sounds like what they do during a tummy tuck, doesn't it? (laughs) But in actuality, it is the false teaching that the body and blood of Christ are literally present in the bread and wine of communion. Now, Jesus did say that anyone who partakes of his flesh has eternal life. But if that was a reference to the Lord's table, it would mean that eternal life could be gained through taking communion. But we know that is clearly foreign to Scripture, which teaches that communion is for those who are already believers. Now, in fairness to the crowd that Jesus was speaking to, being Orthodox Jews, the listeners knew the divine prohibition against eating human flesh or any kind of blood. And so we have another example here in John's Gospel of people misunderstanding a spiritual truth by treating it literally. All Jesus said was, just as you take food and drink within your body and it becomes a part of your body, So you must receive me within your innermost being, so that I can give you life. As I said, some interpreters tell us that Jesus was speaking about the Lord's Supper, and that when we eat and drink his flesh and blood, when we partake of the elements at the table and the bread and the cup, which we will be doing this morning, that that is what it is talking about. I do not believe that Jesus had communion in mind when he spoke these words. For one thing, why would he discuss the Lord's Supper with a group of disagreeable unbelievers? He had not even shared that truth with his disciples. And so why would he cast this precious pearl before unbelieving swine? Second, he made it clear that he was not speaking in literal terms. He was using a human analogy to convey a spiritual truth, just as he did with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. Third, Jesus made it plain that his eating and drinking were absolutely essential for eternal life. He made no exceptions. If then he was speaking about a church ordinance or sacrament, it follows that everybody who has never shared in that experience is spiritually dead and are going to hell. This would include all the Old Testament saints the thief on the cross, and a multitude of people who have trusted Christ in emergency situations such as hospitals, accidents, and foxholes. I personally cannot believe that God has excluded all from salvation those who cannot participate in a church ceremony. So with that knowledge as our background, let's see what the text really means. When Jesus called himself the living bread, he was not claiming to be exactly like the manna. He was claiming to be even greater. The manna only sustained life for the Jews, but Jesus gives his life for the entire world. The Jews ate the manna daily, but they eventually died. But when you receive Jesus Christ within, you live forever. When God gave the manna, he only gave it as a gift. But when Jesus came, he gave himself. Jesus says, the bread that I give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, back in those days, you didn't have sliced bread. Back then, you would just take the loaf and tear it apart. Jesus said that his body was going to be like that bread in that it was torn apart. And because of that, he can now give life to mankind. Now, there was no cost in God sending the manna each day, but he gave his son at a great cost. The Jews had to eat the manna every day, but the sinner who sincerely trusts in Christ just once has been given eternal life. I'm glad that Jesus went on to speak about the cross because Christ without the cross is of no use to us. What I mean is, we can look at his example and the way he lived his life and we can admire it. But the life alone does not help. We can admire the life, but in our fleshly strength, we cannot live that life. Besides, we are condemned by that life. For it is the standard of what God would require of us as his creation. A Christ without the cross is of no use to us, because as the judge he must condemn sinners. But fortunately there is more, for Jesus went on to speak of the cross and to eventually die upon it and rise again. Now there is hope. He died for our sin. The chastisement of our peace was was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. In his resurrection life, now we can have life. In his righteousness through his death, we are now counted righteous in the sight of a holy and loving God. How is that done? Ever the master teacher, Jesus used a simple everyday routine of eating to communicate profound spiritual truth. The analogy of eating suggests four parallels to appropriating spiritual truth. First, Just as food is useless unless it is eaten, so also spiritual truth does us no good if it is not internalized. Merely knowing the truth without acting upon that truth profits us nothing. James says it's like when you first get up in the morning and you sneak up on the mirror to see how much damage was inflicted during the night. But instead of fixing it, you just shrug your shoulders and head to the kitchen for your Fruit Loops. That's like memorizing a bunch of Bible verses, but obeying none of them. It really does you no good. Second, eating is prompted by hunger. As we all know, those who are full are not interested in food. In the same way, sinners who are satiated with their sin have no hunger for spiritual things. But when God awakens them to their lost condition, however, the hunger for love, deliverance, peace, hope, and joy then drives them to the bread of life. Third, the food people eat becomes part of them through the operation of the body's digestive system. What happens when you eat something? When you take a piece of bread and eat it, What happens to that bread? It becomes a part of you. You can't change that. Once you eat that bread, that bread does two things. Number one, it goes into the deepest part of your life. And number two, it goes into every part of your life. Jesus is using this as an illustration of what happens when we believe in him. To believe in Him is have Him to come into my life by the Holy Spirit. And when He comes into my life, He does the same thing that food does. He goes into the deepest part of my life, and He goes into every part of my life. It is no shallow or incomplete work that He does in our lives. We now become one with Him. That is why the constant refrain in the book of Ephesians talks about being in in Christ Jesus. We are in him, and by the Holy Spirit, he is in us. So it is spiritually. People may admire Christ. They may be impressed with his teaching and even bemoan his death on the cross as a great tragedy. But not until they appropriate him by faith do they become one with him. Jesus is calling them and us to lose our identity in Him. Finally, eating is personal. No one can eat a meal for someone else. There is no such thing as eating by proxy. And In the same way, we can't be saved by riding on the coattails of someone else's faith. There is one thing that God is not, and that is a grandfather. He only has daughters and sons. Basically, we can understand what it means to eat of Jesus when we understand what happened to Adam and Eve when they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It was after they ate the forbidden fruit that they fell because they were no longer completely and constantly dependent upon the Father. You see, prior to the fall, whenever they had questions, they could have said, Father, what should we do? But once they ate of the fruit, they became independent. They no longer talked to their Abba Father. They said instead, we know what's good. We know what's evil. We know how to handle this or accomplish that. Here Jesus says, you've eaten of the knowledge of good and evil, and it's led to your fall. Now, eat of me the tree of life. Internalize me. Allow me to come into the deepest recesses of your being. Allow me to take control of your life. Practically, we can understand what it means to eat of Jesus when we realize that although we can get by without exercise, excitement, or education, we cannot get by without without eating. We may not do a lot of things we think we should do, but there is one thing we make sure that we always do. This is Calorie Chapel. We eat. And here the Lord in this analogy gets very practical when he says, I want to be the priority of your life. Make it a necessity to eat of me daily and consistently. Jesus then tells us that as the living bread, if we eat it, we will not die and can live forever. And whether people admit it or not, they are scared to die. After all, only one thing will prevent you from watching every person you know die from murder, accident, or disease. And that will be your own death by murder, accident, or disease. And so unless you have a robust belief that you will live forever with your Christian loved ones, then how can you admit the truth about death and not be depressed? Many people are like Woody Allen who quipped, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to be there when it happens. If you are honest, in other words, if you aren't in denial or keeping yourself distracted from the horror of the human condition, then how could you not be depressed? Atheist Bertrand Russell writes that we must build our lives on the firm foundation of unyielding despair. He says, brief and powerless is man's life. On him and all his race, a slow, sure doom falls, pitiless and dark. Oh, you know he was fun at parties. <laughs> and it also doesn't matter how rich, good-looking, or famous you are either. In a lengthy interview with TV personality Larry King, claimed that the now 86-year-old King is fixated on dying. The New York Times interviewer wrote, Sean King, who was his seventh wife, told me that Larry talked so much about his demise that he started to upset their teenage sons, and she had to tell him to knock it off. He kept saying, listen, I'm not going to be around much longer, boys. Whatever you do, don't let your mother put me in a home. Recently, Larry and Sean met with some lawyer and insurance types to go over their family trust. They were talking about his will and who got what and all the tax ramifications. After about 20 minutes, Larry said, wait a minute. I won't be here when this happens. I won't exist. Everything in this conversation has nothing to do with me. For the emphatically non-religious king can't see how one's life story can end up well if you end up in the ground. But apparently king is still trying to avoid death. The article continues, King takes four human growth hormone pills every day, and he claims to feel great. Of course, at 86, you probably can't remember how you feel. That was Pastor Bill's commentary, not the article. But in case of death, King has arranged to have his body frozen and then thawed out. When researchers discover a cure for whatever killed him, the so-called cryonics approach, the article ends by King saying, he told the reporter, he thinks that all the people behind cryonics are a bunch of nuts. But at least if he knows he will be frozen, he can die with a shred of hope. Because at the end he said, other people have no hope. Well, King is wrong there. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15:19. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men to be most pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who fall asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came resurrection from the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. What Paul is saying is that heaven is available for anyone who is willing to repent of their sins and trust Christ as their Savior. But the vast majority of the human race refuses to do that very thing. People often criticize Christianity because they think it envisions heaven as an exclusive club that everybody desperately wants to get into and that God is trying to keep people out of. The reality, however, is that no one really wants heaven. If the admission price is repentance and trusting their life to Christ. The hymn, Rock of Ages, has a telling line. Be of sin the double cure, save from wrath, and make me pure. The Bible even says that left to ourselves and our sinful flesh, none of us would ever seek God and His holiness. And so really, hell is just the absence of God. And more people want that than what you might think. Maybe that's why we sometimes speak of a stairway to heaven, but a highway to hell. And yet we live in a spiritually hungry world, desperate for meaning and hope in life. From the beginning, human beings were created to serve God and have fellowship with Him. He was to be both their focus and their fulfillment. But by rejecting him, men and women have been left with an aching void deep within their souls. In their misguided attempts to fill that emptiness, they, like Israel of old, have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters, and have hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns, that can hold no water. Yet fallen men do not find the exhilarating freedom they seek by casting God aside. Instead, they only discover the horrifying futility of a godless life. Christian apologist William Lane Craig explains, Who am I, man asks? Why am I here? Where am I going? Since the Enlightenment, when he threw off the shackles of religion, man has tried to answer these questions without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. You are the accidental byproduct of nature, he is told, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. Modern man thought that when he had got rid of God and he had freed himself from all that repressed and stifled him, instead he discovered that in killing God, he had also killed himself. For if there is no God, then man's life becomes absurd. Craig finishes by saying apart from God, mankind is a doomed race in a dying universe because the human race will eventually cease to exist. If it does, it makes no ultimate difference whether or not it ever did exist. Mankind is thus no more significant than a swarm of mosquitoes or a barnyard of pigs for their end is all the same. The same blind cosmic process that caught them up in the first place will eventually swallow them up again. But the scripture teaches that the believer does not have to fear death. And then in fact, we are heading for a paradise none of us can truly even begin to comprehend. And so death should not cause us to fear. Well, how does that work? First... If we are not going to fear death, we must love the Lord with all of our hearts, souls, mind, and strength, and not love this present world. After all, if we do love this present world, if this world is what is consuming our hearts, then we are certainly going to dread leaving it. In 1 John 2.15, we are commanded, Do not love this world or the things that are in this world, If any man does love this world, then the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but from the world. Now listen to this next verse. And the world is passing away along with all of its desires, but whoever does the will of God will abide forever. Notice that this world is dying. It is passing away. And if you love this world, then you won't love the Father. And when the world dies, you're going to die with it. Instead, John tells us, do not love the things that are in this world. And if you can do this, you will abide forever. In mythology, there's a story of the sirens. Sirens are like mermaids, but part bird instead of part fish. They were creatures that only cared for the destruction of men. The Sirens live on an island. When ships pass by, they come by and they sing to the men on the ship. Bewitched by their song, sailors turn the ship toward the island, only to have the boat dashed on the rocks and everyone dies. We are told that around the Sirens lie great heaps of men, flesh rotting from their bones, their skin all shriveled up. One ship's captain named Odysseus wants to hear the music of the sirens, so he puts wax in the ear of all his men, and he securely has them tie him to the ship's mast. As expected, the sirens call out, Odysseus, come here. You are well known for many stories, glory of the Greeks. Now stop your ship and listen to our voices. All those who pass this way hear honeyed song poured from our mouths. The music brings them great joy. Odysseus writes, Their song was so melodious. I longed to listen to more. I told my men to free me. I scowled at them. But they kept rowing on. In fact, as instructed, when he begs them to stop, they only add more ropes and tie the knots even tighter. Finally, the island is out of earshot. So the men untie him and he is safe. Why would I share that this morning? Sadly, many Christians live their entire Christian life just like Odysseus. They listen to the music of this world and struggle against their Christian commitment. So many Christians lust after this world but manage, sort of, not to go headlong into sin. But sadly, eventually, too many escape their bonds of commitment, and their faith is shipwrecked. And in much the same way, this world that we live in will always try to entice us with its alluring songs. And if we follow those songs throughout our lives, it will surely draw us also to our death and our destruction. But here's the thing I want us to get. You can choose what you love, except for a chemical or hormonal imbalance, the cliche feelings aren't right or wrong, they just are. It's complete and utter nonsense. You can choose where to set your affections. And if you don't want to fear death, you need to choose to not love this world or the things that are in this world. Don't love this dying, decaying, polluted, lust-filled world which will sooner or later break your heart. Instead, love that which will never die. As Solomon says in Proverbs 4.23, Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. So if you love that which will never die, and this takes determination, then you will abide forever. Second, We must drink in, bathe in, swim in, and revel in the Word of God. Psalm 1 tells us that the blessed person's delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of waters. And it yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And all that person does is prosper. I love those verses. If you want to bear fruit and not wither like everything else is withering, then meditate on the word of God. Here's a news flash for all of us. The words disciple and discipline have more in common than just their spelling. If we are going to be Jesus' disciples, then we need to discipline ourselves. So as we finish up this morning, if we're going to live a victorious Christian life in the face of death, then we need to abide in and hang out in God's Word. It should flow through our minds, and we should filter everything through the grid of Scripture. It's funny, though. Most Christians crave to achieve the American dream and take small solace in the fact that, yes, when they die, they also will inherit that live forever thingy. Too often we concentrate on the few decades we have on earth and ignore the fact that we are actually going to live forever. But eternal life in Jesus isn't the encore. It's the main event. And it's precisely upon that which we should set our hope. Even worse, there's this drivel that you're going to be so heavenly minded that you are no earthly good. You've probably heard that. I have to tell you, In almost 33 years of walking with Christ, I've never met that person. And I mean it. I've never met a person who was so heavenly minded that they were no earthly good. Now I have met plenty of Christians who were so earthly minded that they were no heavenly good. And I've been in their company on occasion. 1 Peter 1.13 says... Therefore, preparing your mind for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That isn't three separate commands. We are told to prepare our mind for action and to be ready for a specific purpose. What purpose? That we can set our hope fully on the grace that will be given us at the return of Christ. This is in the exact opposite of the worldly goals related to living, the present, and just pursuing some kind of bucket list. We are commanded to do God's will while here and still focus on the future. The world and its history are prelude and foretaste. All the sunrises and sunsets, feasts and friendships, all that is but whispers. They are just a prologue to a grander story and an even better place. Only there, it will never end. J.I. Packer said it so well. Hearts on earth say in the course of a joyful experience, I don't want this to ever end. But it invariably does. The hearts in heaven say, I want this to go on forever. And it will. There can be no better news. Than this, Father, drive that into our spirits today. Let us live for you, Lord. So many voices calling for our attention in this world. We live in an Isaiah 520 world where good is evil and light is dark and sweet is sour. Help us to navigate this, Lord, the only way that it can be navigated successfully, and that is through the Word and by the help of your Holy Spirit. Do that in our lives, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Ask Elder Klein and Elder Haynes to come up being the first